and welcome back to the Thomistic Institute podcast. My name is Father Gregory, and I am a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, associated in some small way, which is to say only by means of this podcast with the Thomistic Institute, although that's a slight exaggeration because I did work for the Thomistic Institute for two years before going on to doctoral studies. And these, or I should say this, is an off-campus conversation to which you may or may not have become accustomed, depending on whether or not you've listened to them. But we've done a few now, I guess, for the past six, seven months, and the hope is that by following up with Thomistic Institute speakers, we can deepen some of the insights that they will have shared at lectures on campus or in retreats, conferences, what have you. So for this installment of Off-Campus Conversations, very delighted to be joined by Sister Eleanor Gardner. Thanks for joining, Sister. Thank you so much, Father Gregory. It's great to be here. Cheers. All right. So, sister, some folks will know you from your TI contributions, um, and some folks will not know you. I was about to say, no, you not. But then I said, Father Gregory, <laughs> is now a time for inverted syntax? And I answered no, but then I still shared it because I can't help myself. Um, but would you just say a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Gladly. Yeah. So my name is um, Sister Eleanor Gardner. I'm a Dominican sister of St. Cecilia. Uh, based in Nashville, Tennessee, um, but I currently teach at the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas, and that's where I'm uh, speaking from right now. And I've been here for about four years um, teaching philosophy in the philosophy department and enjoying the, the wonderful Texas weather. Um, we have uh, also an elementary school here in, um, the tech, in the Dallas area. Anything else? Uh, th that's a great start. I, I was listening to your lecture and then I was listening to another lecture of yours online in anticipation of this here conversation. Um, and the person interviewing you in the second asks, you know, like, how is it that you became a Dominican sister or how it is that you find yourself in your current assignment? And you described like following, following, I am stumbling over my words. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to recover. All right, here we go. You described falling in love with philosophy. Could you say a word about that, how it is that that happens uh, for those of us who aspire uh, to the same? Well, I can, I can say what, what happened or what I meant by that. Um, I'm not sure how it happens exactly, but um, <laughs> I think that is sort of the, the original, it's the Socratic um, bug that <laughs> bites some people. And it's, it's really the, a love of wisdom, I think, um, or desire for it, a sense that uh, by pursuing these kinds of questions and conversations, uh, one can not just learn more information, but uh, acquire some kind of something more than information, uh, which we usually call wisdom. And I don't know that I would have articulated it that way, but it was, that's what it was um, on reflection. Um, so I had the blessing of attending a liberal arts school or I was forced to take philosophy um, and did so gladly, but that, that was my introduction to this pursuit of wisdom, um, through thinking and conversation and reading. Um, so it really just drew me, um, and I ended up continuing in my studies and was blessed to, uh, be able to finish my doctorate, um, as a religious sister. And then I've been teaching since. Okay. Um, I, I had the experience, well, I had the experience in high school of not wanting to take any liberal arts classes because I don't know why, because I was a brat. So I just took lots of math and science. Um, but then when I got to college, I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville and I started with the great books kind of course program. And then I switched into a major, which was like that, but different. Um, and I remember on the one hand feeling like tantalized as it were, it was like the truth was just around the next corner. 
but I couldn't quite get there. Or whenever I turned the aforementioned corner, it had retreated further on. I was like, oh my gosh, I could almost name it or I could almost claim it. And yet here we are. And on the other hand, I felt, um, yeah, kind of underwhelmed by my own intellectual powers. There were times during which I wished there were fewer things to know so that I could know a higher percentage of them or that I could fit more of reality into my mind. <laughs> I remember making reading lists and just despairing at all of the books that there were <laughs> that I had not yet read and being like, Gregory, you will never amount to anything. Um, so sometimes one comes to the love of wisdom by more, you know, excellent uh, and by less excellent ways. So <laughs> cheers to you. <laughs> I know that feeling, by the way, of the the never-ending look of uh, list of books that uh, I will never read all the things that I want to read. And how do all those other people read all those those things that I haven't read? Um, but I think that's that's different, right? Than um, the sense you get of like, the thing that you're knowing and just the delight of thinking about it. And it's a contemplative um, moment that draws you. And then, well, all the other stuff is is helpful, but. So I am highly tempted, very tempted, use the appropriate adverb, I am that tempted, uh, to derail this conversation, to just <laughs> direct it off the course of death and direct it on the course of philosophy. Because, right, so like, what is it exactly when your mind corresponds to what is, right, we have a word for that, truth, or at least in certain traditions, we would call that truth. In other traditions, truth is what you make of it, post-structural nonsense, right? But in the perennial tradition, truth is when you are shaped by what is and you experience a kind of resonance, right? And there's, there's higher delights in even momentary snatches of the encounter with whatever it is that that is. Um, and I guess, yeah, may, maybe part of my experience of on the one hand being tantalized and on the other hand being over or underwhelmed by my own intellectual capacity was that I had this desire for conformity or I had this hope that the conformity could in fact take place all men by nature desire to know. Um, as you, I mean, just based on your experience, I mean, as a philosopher, but also as an instructor, uh, I suppose 21st century, there's a lot of, um, what would one say, cynicism, maybe, or irony about the possibility of this correspondence, or even beyond that, the possibility of adducing it in another. Uh, could you could you give me hope that this pursuit mm. exists? Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, somewhat of a side note, but I, I do get a lot of hope from my students at University of Dallas. I, I have to give that to them. That um, I I don't know how long I could keep this up if I didn't have a good number of students who do seem to respond, who similarly seem interested in, in wisdom uh, and the pursuit of it. So there's, there's that. Um, yeah, hope though in our in our broader culture is kind of hard to come by. Hope in in some attainability of truth, um, and maybe there is a connection to death. I mean, it's, uh, when you mentioned death and, and philosophy in the same sentence, I couldn't help but think of Socrates and idea of of um, philosophy as a preparation for death. Um, so that idea has kind of been with philosophers from the beginning, um, and apart from his peculiar ideas about what happens to the soul after it, it leaves the body. Um, you know, maybe there, there is something in us that realizes that we, we won't attain wisdom in, in the life that we're in now, in our 
in our current state, but we really want it. Um, so it's this sort of ecstatic movement or this longing for something that we, that we know we will never fully grasp um, here and now. And yet it is hopeful. Like we, we do have a confidence that there's, there's something there. Um, and whatever it is, is worth pursuing regardless of our inability, at least currently to hold on to it. Um, and then of course, if you, if you become absolutely convinced there is nothing after life, uh, nothing after death, then it does corrupt, I think, your ability to seek the truth in this kind of philosophical mode, at least in the Socratic philosophical mode, right? Why would you, why would you give your life to pursuing a, a wisdom that you know is not possible in this life? And if there's nothing else, it's just not possible. Yeah. Let the Bacchanalian rebels begin. Um, so, okay. I'm thinking then about this connection between philosophy and sanctity. Um, okay. So why am I thinking about this? As you're talking, I'm thinking about what GK Chesterton says. I think it's an orthodoxy where he's describing the difference between what he calls the Eastern saint and the Western saint. I don't know that he has any particular religious tradition in mind for the Eastern saint, but it's like a kind of sleek bodied, contented person with eyes closed who spends his or her life in introspection. Uh, and you get the impression based on his description of a kind of self-satisfaction. Whereas then he describes the Western state. It's clear that he's thinking about Christianity. He's got somebody like St. Francis in mind. And he describes him as like starved to his crazy bones, but with eyes wildly alive. Uh, so there's this openness to reality. And it strikes me that there is some connection with death because, you know, that one be starved to his crazy bones. There's a kind of sense that in pursuit of what is right, in pursuit of what is good, um, to put a particularly holy bent on it, um, that you're willing to give up everything or next to everything, or you hope that you'll have such integrity as to be willing to give up everything. Okay, so we're approaching then the question of death. I'll, I will actually address the topic that I proposed to address or that you proposed to address in your lecture and did so as to whether or not I succeed in the same remains to be seen. Um, okay, so w what is it about death that Okay, so you describe philosophy as a preparation for death, but what is it about death that kind of reaches into this current discourse, that reaches into our philosophical pursuits or to our theological pursuits or just to our like life pursuits, trying to live a good life, trying to pursue good goals? What is it about death that kind of touches all of that or tinges all of that, depending on, on how you describe it? Um, yeah, and how does that maybe in some way, shape or form, I don't know, chasten the discourse or uh, I don't know, inform the discourse? I'm thinking, yeah. So that's not well formulated, but I'm going to send it back to you and you can choose to answer whichever question of the past 17 I just posed. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, well, you know, for the, for the academic or not just the academic, but for the learner, let's say, um, and academics should be, should be learners always. Maybe death has this particular effect on what we do that, um, it's like what we were talking about earlier with the list of books that I'll never my whole life be able to read. Um, we do have this sense that there's so much to be known. And then the presence of death is the the end of the time in which we can come to know those things. So like the, the pressure of that temporality that death gives us um, affects our intellectual life in that way that we we do have to make choices about what we spend our time on study how much how much we devote to this 
Um, and yet we have this desire for this wisdom that transcends whatever we can accomplish in this life. Um, and I, I suspect there's something similar in every profession or every um, every aspect of life, you know, that, that death could, with a, a marriage, for example, or just a friendship, um, that that temporality would have particular effects on how we approach it. Um, but in the intellectual life, it's, it's that uh, knowing I don't have an infinite amount of time to learn or do what I want to do. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think a lot of people in the 21st century in whatever academic discipline, when they talk about situatedness, it's like a way of relativizing the discourse. It's like, wow, you're just saying that as a person of this race or this gender or this time or whatever, this cultural background or setting. But it's fascinating that it situatedness need not be introduced into the discourse to do that, to relativize. It can actually, yeah, not absolutize, but it can recollect us in our human condition. So as you describe, okay, so death is the great limitation. <laughs> It is the limitation of limitations, but it also recollects us in the fact that there are limitations, you know, that are shot through the entirety of our human existence. And I'm thinking here of the fact that we are weak, uh, the fact that we are wounded, but even more basically, the fact that we're human uh, so that we do think temporally or there are temporal um, elements to our thinking uh, and that we do progress temporally, um, that we are wayfarers, that we are pilgrims, that we are on the way towards truth, I think that that death has the final word in that. Because if we are wayfarers, if we are pilgrims, then there is a point of arrival. And the point of arrival isn't just to be whatever, like physically fit or emotionally balanced or psychologically integrated. It's something beyond that. And I think that death really forces us to confront that in some way, shape or form. So maybe, yeah, what does that confrontation look like in the life of a philosopher? What does that confrontation look like in academic life more broadly? Uh, well, again, thinking about Socrates, to start with a non-religious <laughs> example, uh, how, how did he see philosophy as a practicing for death? I mean, part of his detachment from the body, we would say, or not being um, so caught up in, in the pursuit of bodily goods that, that one can't be free to pursue wisdom. But maybe there's also um, Socrates' famous sort of indifference to the material circumstances, um, and even his his sort of intellectual poverty, like his uh, understanding of the limitations of his own understanding, his own knowledge. That that is a kind of death um, that the philosopher lives before dying, a kind of mental or um, death in the soul of knowing and admitting one's own ignorance to oneself and perhaps to others as well, that is um, profitable and, and maybe a necessary condition of philosophy. At least that's what, what Socrates thought. And I think he's right, actually. You know, the best philosophers um, are ones who also know their own ignorance. Yeah. Known unknowns. Um, it's, fa it's fascinating. I was uh, referring back to a book. Have you ever read The Intellectual Life by A.G. Sertiange? I have, yeah. Okay. It's like early on in that book, he says something along, along the lines of truth serves only its slaves. And I was thinking about this because I was giving a talk about freedom and, <laughs> and I was 
for whatever reason, as I was preparing the talk, I was in an especially apocalyptic mood. And I was like, freedom doesn't exist. There are just different forms of servitude. So you want to serve somebody in a kind of bond slavery that begets endless life. Okay, so go for it. And then I was like, back it down, Gregory. The word freedom is totally legitimate. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, but I was thinking about what it meant to be a slave of the truth or in bond servitude to the truth. And I think that what you describe is just a good everyday indication of what that looks like. So there are lots of ways in which we betray the truth or lots of ways in which we serve another master. And I was thinking about in terms of not being willing to admit that we're wrong, for instance, or not being willing to admit that we don't know. Those are some of the most liberating words ever to be pronounced by a human being. I don't know. Because you give yourself permission, you give your interlocutor permission to seek elsewhere. And you may happen upon a good source of the truth when you're cognizant of the fact that it's probably not going to come from you in this instance. But I was also thinking about sometimes when I recount stories, I'll include details and I'll realize after having recounted them, that wasn't entirely accurate. And it's probably because I was talking at 175 words per minute and I wasn't sufficiently recollected in the details to actually care about recounting them in an honest way. But it's like, no, it wasn't two weeks ago. It was three weeks ago. And no, I wasn't driving 45 miles per hour. I was driving 50. And I think that, you know, just to correct yourself in those small moments is another opportunity in which to be of service to the truth. And I think that those disciplines also help you to be more honest when you're writing a term paper and you see that you can make a cute little move that'll save you three hours, but will probably fudge the truth a little bit. You know, at that moment that, you know, there are two paths that open before you. One leads to life and the other leads to death. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's maybe that's just another step in making more concrete this connection between the pursuit of wisdom and then that encounter with death. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that or you want to you want to take it another direction? Uh, yeah, two two things that occurred to me. One, St. Thomas, um, you know, his his very strict um, analysis of lying and you know, the no, even jocose lies are um, to be avoided. And it, it seems kind of harsh, but it, it strikes me that um, it's a counterpart of this this love of wisdom that St. Thomas had that couldn't, I mean, even in the most minor details you know, to, to seek the truth um, in a sort of absolute way. It was he, he did that himself and encouraged us to, to do the same. Um, and then the, the idea of being a slave to truth, um, you know, I think you're actually, you're in good company. <laughs> Not, I also believe in human freedom. It's a reality, but um, <laughs> I, I remember um, a comment that C.S. Lewis makes about Aristotle's um, notion of natural slavery. And, you know, obviously it's a sort of disturbing thing that Aristotle says that there are some human beings who are naturally masters and some who are naturally slaves. No, it can't be, can't be true. You know, man is free. Um, but Lewis kind of turns it on his, on its head and says, well, um, you know, actually I can believe in this idea of a natural slave. Um, I look around me and everyone I see is, a, is naturally a slave. I'm one myself, but where are the natural masters? Um, these, these are uh, not not apparent <laughs> amongst human beings. So the idea that as humans we um, we do look to to serve in some way something or so, or someone greater than ourselves, um, you know, and that's when it's God, that's good. <laughs> but when it's another human being or or something, God forbid, less than ourselves, um, then obviously it's 
very corrupted. So, um, yeah, C.S. Lewis would, would support you on your, <laughs> on your extreme uh, tendencies there, perhaps. Um, so can we talk about being a slave to the truth? Uh, maybe. Uh, or a handmaid, a handmaid of wisdom, something like that, um, has, a, has a venerable tradition. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, maybe, maybe this is an opportunity to follow up on more apocalyptic thoughts that I've had. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a pet thought of mine that remains as yet to be tested by reality. So what better context in which to do it than this, um, is that we talk about happiness, I think in the 21st century, I'm thinking of specifically Catholic conversation that we talk about happiness in the wrong way, or we talk about it in a way that's slightly deceiving because I think you hear a lot, you know, you go to a Steubenville conference, hail Steubenville alma mater. This is not a dig on Steubenville. I'm just saying you go to a particular place in which you hear a witness talk. The speaker quotes John 10, 10, God wants you to have an abundant life or he wants you to live your life and live it abundantly. He came that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. Be more careful with scripture, Father Gregory. Okay, noted. Um, and then the person says, I was doing X, Y, and Z iniquitous things. And then I heard God's voice. And now I'm doing X prime, Y prime, and Z prime uh, excellent things. And I've never been happier. Never look back. Fist pump, high five, cheers. Uh, and sometimes when you hear that, you're like, holy smokes, uh, one, God doesn't love me because if he did love me, my life would have something similar in it. Uh, but number two, is it really possible to be that happy? Because I spend most of my day fending off distraction, thinking about how hungry I am and planning my next vacation that I'll never take. So what gives? Okay. Um, but, but, uh, and again, I don't want to sound too terrible, but I think that there's a sense in which Christ gets into your life. So is in a certain sense to ruin your life, to leave you nothing in your life except for him. Not that he makes you boring. He's like, all right, all that I'm going to leave you with are hand embroideries and calligraphy skills. And you're like, no, come on, another hobby, please. I wanted to be good at yachting. Um, right? No, not, not in that sense, but that the Lord doesn't let you settle for things that are less. He doesn't let you settle for lower, for lower happiness, for, for lower comfort. Uh, for lower satisfaction. And so we find ourselves continually discontented. Um, so, okay, for the philosopher, how does one cultivate the dispositions, right? The habits of mind and heart, which helps one to be on the way and just this type of thing to receive the happiness, which God gives, which is probably something more like fit or a kind of confidence that you are on the way towards the fullness, which lies in store and can experience it in small snatches. Um, yeah, but what are the habits of mind and heart, which, which set us up to look at life well, and then to pursue the course well. So I, I'm not sure how much um, this is peculiar to the intellectual life, but I think it, it applies there too. But I, I think about another Christian tradition of asceticism um, and in its many various forms as a way in which we die daily um, before we actually die. And that that is uh, the whole purpose of that is not suffering as a good in and of itself, but as something which uh, frees us, frees our hearts to create that disposition that you're talking about um, to be inclined towards higher things, inclined towards God, to settle for nothing less. Okay. So let's follow up on asceticism and let's think about it in 
and a philosophical register. So there are people listening that are probably doing, let's see, Exodus 90, or I've heard of Magnify 90, I've heard of Fiat 90. There are lots of ways in which to introduce asceticism to your life at this time of year. Um, and it's, it's intense. Uh, and there are a lot of practices which I don't think people would do otherwise, like unless they were part of this program and unless they had accountability partners. Um, <clears throat> what do you think provided that this kind of intense time of asceticism is something that's probably for Lent or for the 90 days leading up to Easter, and that uh, you're probably not going to take cold showers every day of your life, or you're probably not going to look at a screen but for on a certain hour of a Sunday. Um, what are ways in which we can cultivate certain ascetical practices which help one to be a good intellectual? Like, can you help me draw the connections between asceticism and intellectual life? Because I'm writing my thesis right now, and I basically want to slam my hand in a freezer door maybe once an hour just so I can feel something other than self-loathing. Just kidding. Um, right? But it's, it's brutal. So I would, I would love help, hints, tips, tricks for cultivating these ascetical life. Yeah, you know the the idea of the crucifixion of the de of the desk. Uh, we talk about that in the Dominican order. Um, how study is itself a a great asceticism, um, and right that anyone who's done a degree or written a dissertation understands this. I think um, that this there there is built in. Um, even if you love it, I mean, if you absolutely love what you're studying, there's built in this. Um, difficulty and the, the laboriousness of just keeping at it. Um, I find for myself, and I'm sure for most people, uh, the biggest thing is the availability of so much on the internet um, that I need to use. I need to use the internet um, as part of research and, and study and writing, but um, the availability of so many other possibilities um, there at your fingertips requires a, a lot of discipline, um, which I don't always exercise well. Um, but even if there were only books, um, well, there's so many interesting books. And, you know, you've, you've probably experienced this, Father Gregory, that when writing your dissertation, suddenly every other topic seems more interesting than the one that you have to think about. <laughs> like, oh, this book, I've always meant to re read this. Um, I'll just take a quick look at it. You know, so even if there weren't the internet, I think we'd experience this, but all the more so, you know, the, the discipline that that calls us to, um, invites us to. Yeah. No, it's fair. I, I sometimes make, uh, distinctions between the philosophical cast of mind and the theological cast of mind. Uh, and I think that philosophers, uh, I mean, theologians listening to this will be like, how dare you quote Greta Thornburg. Um, but I think that philosophers tend to be more honest about the reality uh, or they tend to be more passionate about describing the reality according to the reality's self-presentation. Whereas often enough, theologians get in the habit of just plumbing the depths of the divine wisdom, and they come to a certain point where you can only swim in an infinite ocean of substance so long before you say, you know what, this sounds beautiful, I'm going to advance it as a thesis. So I think that there's just kind of a different instinct, and I think that the disciplines demanded of the philosopher and the theologian might be distinct on account of those different emphases of, of the discourse. Just, I, I just do a lot of work in arguments that are from fittingness <laughs> and to try to, you know, to try to stay home and not indulge in science fiction is, is tough. It can, it can certainly be tough because it's not just about saying something pretty. It's about 
chastening the discourse so that you say what is insofar as you are able to say what is. But I don't know, maybe that's a crass estimation of the two disciplines. I don't know what you think. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, yeah, but it, it might be true that there's, there are different, um, different temptations and different, different strengths in the two disciplines for sure. Uh, and, you know, with, with revelation, you do have a kind of, of confidence always in your, in your conclusions. I mean, not in your reading or your interpretation necessarily, but, um, you have that kind of rock solid conviction of, I know this is, I know this is true, regardless of how much I understand it. Um, whereas in philosophy, you don't have that kind of security. Um, I mean, you do with regard to things that are also revealed, but in terms of advancing some philosophical proposition, um, you're kind of just putting it out there as, as your own. I, I think this, and I think I have good reasons. Um, maybe that's in itself a kind of disciplinary exercise when you put forth something that's your idea um, and you open yourself to the people who are going to tear it apart and knock it down and do all kinds of nasty things to it. Um, but you do it in interest of the truth, then it's, um, it's a good kind of discipline. Uh, but gosh, it's awfully hard not to um, not to get hurt in that or, you know, for the ego to be sensitive to um, criticism. But, you know, if we were really like Socrates, we would say, yeah, you know, tear down my idea <laughs> because that's, I, I don't care that it's my idea. I care about the truth. Um, so do your worst to this idea that I'm putting forth. Okay. In the time that remains, then let's return to the question of death perhaps more directly. Um, so in the lecture that you gave, uh, for which this off-campus conversation is a further exploration or an extended commentary, however you want to describe it, or something entirely unrelated, um, <laughs> um, you, you describe different philosophical proofs for the immortality of the soul or different philosophical approaches, as it were, to the mystery of death, focusing especially on Plato, Aristotle, and then St. Thomas Aquinas's appropriation of, of those traditions. Um, so those are, I mean, it seems that within the perennial philosophy, that's something that can be proved by reason, or, you know, we would refer to it as a preambula fidei, but we aren't just disembodied brains, or we aren't just thinkers in a sensory deprivation vat. So we are trying to come at this from within our particular whatever. Uh, that's embarrassing that the word that I thought of is a word in another language that I don't speak. And I'm not actually sure what the meaning of it is. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, too long at the desk there, big fella. Um, so it's just, you know, from another worldview, as it were. Uh, so people have difficulty acknowledging this. And you talked especially about Clarence Darrow, known best for the Scopes trial, but who has some <laughs> just uh, brutally uninspired things to say about the Christian tradition and its affirmation of life after death. Um, okay, 21st century, how can we testify, as it were, to the immortality of the soul? Um, just think about it in those terms. Obviously, we're testifying to more. We're testifying to the fact that God lives, right? That our Lord Jesus Christ took human flesh, that he suffered, died, and rose from the grave to save us. So, I mean, we're going to proclaim a lot of things. Well, we're going to proclaim one thing, but in a variety of words. And maybe we needn't get tripped up by the proclamation of the immortality of the soul. 
But it strikes me like on a college campus, you have a, a rare opportunity to recall students to their dignity, right? And to recall them to their immortality. So yeah, what are, what are, some, what are some things that we can add to that conversation or ways in which we can engage that discourse better? So the, um, the Clarence Darrow kind of idea, one of, one of his criticisms, which I actually found a good, a good point of meditation was um, his accusation that Christians can't really believe in the immortality of the soul because they also, like everybody else, are afraid of death and try to avoid it. Um, and I think that's true. I mean, we, we do, we Christians are also afraid of death and we try to avoid it um, as long as is reasonably possible. Maybe not at all costs, hopefully, but um, we, we don't want death. We recognize that it's something horrible and, um, and evil. Now, I don't think that that um, necessarily means we don't truly believe in the immortality of the soul or the resurrection of the body. Um, but it may mean that this is a hard belief to, to hold on to, um, again, thinking of an, an image that Plato uses in the Republic of holding on to our beliefs as they're being able to remain even when our soul, so to speak, goes through the wash and the strongest detergents, um, have at it. So those, those detergents of, of the pains and pleasures of life, um, might, have the effect of sort of fading or, or weakening our, our trust in belief in the, the destiny, the eternal destiny of the soul. Um, so how do we, your question is, how do we witness to that um, today? Um, well, um, by really believing it, I, I would say, first of all, and practicing uh, daily that death the death to self and the uh, meditation on death as part of the Christian tradition, which doesn't mean morbidly thinking about death all the time, but um, being willing to accept the necessary deaths that come outside of our control, but necessarily, uh, as well as asceticism in whatever way is appropriate to our state in life. Um, so there's those kinds of traditional means. Um, and then I think people, people, at least on a college campus like this one, are willing and interested in talking about it. So I think like what you're doing, Father Gregory, and the Thomistic Institute, the Thomistic Institute is doing, is satisfying a, a desire for people to hear and think about these things because nobody wants to, in the broader culture, face them head on. Um, and that's one of the, the difficulties is just overcoming this sort of covering over of death or um, you know, we don't even like to say the word die or death about, um, that, about the reality. So just having a forum where people can honestly talk about, um, think about, contemplate this thing, which is so much a part of our, our life. And it defines, as we said earlier, as a limit, um, all of our possibilities. So yeah, let's, let's continue to have conversations about it. And that a college campus is, is the place where that ought to happen, right? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe there's a sense in which the intellectual life has done well as a kind of element of the ars moriendi, right? So like the art of dying, hopefully dying well, insofar as 
if you're engaging with the big ticket items, right? You're thinking about God and you're thinking about creation, your place in it, um, how you might comport yourself well enough so as to be, be described as good, <laughs> at least at some point in your life, right? That those are all proximate preparations for dying well. Um, in the sense that, yeah, that death isn't so much an accident or death isn't so much a mistake as it is, yeah, I'm thinking of foreseen and foresuffered. For whatever reason, I, I, I listened to the Four Quartets by C.S. Lewis, something like, excuse me, not C.S. Lewis, T.S. Eliot, that's embarrassing, um, like 150 times at one point because it was the only audio track that I had on this particular MP3, MP3 player that I used to go running for a while. And I still have no idea what it means. Uh, but occasionally, little words come back from it. Um, <laughs> um, so this idea that, that death becomes, though it's the last in execution, it becomes the kind of first in intention. I'm thinking like St. Maximilian Kolbe at a young age, you know, I guess it was Our Lady appeared to him and offered him two crowns, a white crown for a white martyrdom, a red crown for a red martyrdom. And he said, like St. Therese before him, <laughs> give it all, you know, I'll take, I'll take it all. I'll take it both. Um, that that can be in some way, shape or form, probably in more modest ways, um, even mundane ways that can be part of our daily life or that can be part of our daily practice. Because before we push record, I was describing that this past weekend I was hiking, I fell. I always put myself in bad hiking situations. I hope my religious superiors don't listen to podcasts because then I won't receive any formal correction as if we're pertaining to my hiking adventures. Um, but I was thinking about death because as I was sliding down this thing and I didn't know when my sliding down this thing was going to end, I was like, I don't especially want to die. But it was kind of one of those weird out-of-body experiences where you're like, I don't actually know where this thing ends. And I'm not hyperventilating yet, so maybe this is a moment of brilliant clarity. <laughs> did your life flash before your eyes? It, it did not. I'm no. just young enough that I don't really have much of a life to flash. So, um, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, philosophy is ours more oriented. This is helping me, I suppose. This is helping me because, yeah, there's certain traditional, like, 19th century, I'm thinking especially. Yeah, the French school of, like, 18th and 19th century especially, where when you meditate on death, you especially meditate on hell. And that for me is an occasion of high anxiety. But to meditate on death, I think it's it's kind of what we're trying to capture in some of those 18th and 19th century notions that um, this ends, right? And that's like the most important thing because it's it's in ending or it's where it ends that we have a privileged place of encounter with the Lord who comes to meet us in our death. And now I've just jumped the philosophical shark straight into theological life entire. But... Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that I had something coherent to say about death, but I think less and less that to be the case as of late. So I don't know. You're, yeah, maybe some of your final thoughts on, on philosophy is ours moriendi. Well, it probably does. It certainly does point to, to theology, right? It's not, <laughs> uh, it's not um, satisfactory in the end. And I, I don't know any examples apart from Socrates himself of philosophers who quite literally uh, lived and died their philosophy in that way. I mean, Socrates seems sort of like a, a miracle, <laughs> a natural miracle, supernatural, I'm not sure, um, given, to, given to philosophy to get it on the right track and start things out. Uh, correctly. But for most of us, you know, we, we aren't quite that detached. Um, and we don't 
have that, that pure, absolutely pure love for wisdom, um, which would ignore everything, even death itself. Um, unless we also happen to believe in the, the saving effectiveness of the passion and death of Christ, um, that that, I mean, it's not like, well, for those who aren't as good as Socrates, you can have a Christian believe <laughs> I'm not saying that. Um, but that there's, there is hope, um, even for, for those of us who are weak, <laughs> like myself, um, in thinking that there is one who has walked this way first. And as you said, Father comes to, comes to meet us in our death. Um, I mean, not just in our literal death, but in our daily dyings that, that, um, what we know through faith about Christ's life in us, um, means that we're not dying every day or dying in the end alone. Um, there's one who's walked that way before us and walks it now with us. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the natural, rather supernatural <laughs> conclusion that that leads us to, right? This, this whole reflection on death is meant to, is meant to lead us to Jesus and not to some abstract wisdom, but to wisdom incarnate. Yeah. Amen. Hallelujah. I wrote part of my fourth chapter on like Christ's wisdom. There's this article that St. Thomas has in the Tercy, it was question three, article eight, where he talks about the fittingness of the fact that it was the second, you know, so that it was the son who took human flesh, um, that there's a kind of correspondence as it were. And as a result of which we would say it's more fitting or it's more excellent that the son took human flesh. And one of the, the reasons that he gives is this kind of appropriation via wisdom that, you know, the word is he through whom the father creates. Uh, so he's kind of like the schema or the pattern of creation. All creation pre-exists and he who is its exemplar. Um, and so that he save us by incarnate wisdom, right? That we would be illumined or that we would undergo this kind of noetic healing, which salvation in fact is, it's most fitting that it be done by the son. That was like one of the parts you were describing that, you know, when you, when you write a dissertation on something, hopefully you love it. Uh, it can be difficult even when you love it, but you know, the love gets you through. That was one of those moments where I was sitting at my desk and I was just kind of, I was like, whoa, you know, just kind of losing my mind. Uh, just especially, especially rich. Um, good. Well, thanks sister. Thanks for having taken the time. <laughs> I am, I am recalled to our first meetings in, I think it was in like 2000. 11, perhaps my first house assignment at the house of studies was as the porter. So I would let people in for morning mass and you and sister Mary Edith would come down from Baltimore because you didn't yet have the house in Washington, DC. And you just try to blaze a trail past me because you're like, listen, I got up at like negative three o'clock and I'm trying to get my meditation in. And I'm like, <laughs> Hey, so like, how's it going? How are things? You're like, <laughs> you very graciously suffered a full walk and you continue to do so as this conversation testifies. Um, so thanks so much for having taken the time. I appreciate it very much. Oh, you're so welcome, Father Gregory. It's a delight, of course. Um, and then if folks want to follow up with you or follow up with your work, particular things uh, that you think might be good resources, um, other places where they can where they can find you, where they can contact you. Um, so I, I would be happy to, to chat with anyone or um, receive, <laughs> receive your missives <laughs> from uh, <laughs> wherever. I'm at the University of Dallas. Um, and you can find our 
our um, address online at udallas.edu. Um, and you can also find my email address um, for, from the philosophy department website there at udallas. Um, yeah, anything else? No, that's great. That's perfect. Thanks. Just just go to Father Gregory Pine and he'll <laughs> answer all there your you questions. There you go. I'll, no, I'll send you to Sister Eleanor. Um, <laughs> good. All right. Well, turning then to you, the listener, thanks so much for having tuned into this episode of the Thomistic Institute podcast. Uh, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the channel, whether on YouTube or on your podcast app. Be sure to like the episode and uh, maybe to give a five-star review, five stars for Sister Eleanor. Um, and then we'll look forward to chatting with you in the next installment of Off-Campus Conversations or in the next lecture that comes out. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we will look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast.